Hi, I'm Rachel Monteleone and welcome to Kittypedia, the podcast. I'm not an expert. However, I do speak with them with the view of providing you with expert information and advice to help you be the best parent that you can be. Together, let's give children the life they deserve and a positive future. Hello and welcome. Well, every parent wants to give their child the life they deserve and a positive future. Now, it's possible in each of our childhoods, we have gaps where our parents have missed passing down knowledge and important life lessons. Now, it's not their fault. They most likely weren't taught those lessons by their parents who weren't taught by their parents and it goes back generation by generation. So how is it that we can teach children lessons about something that we never learned ourselves as a child? Well, we learn how to as an adult from people just like our special guest today. So today we welcome John Hattie, a passionate education expert who will help us learn how we can close that gap through uh, his newly launched book that is aimed to help support parents in providing children with a successful and happy life. Now, a little bit about our guest. John is one of the world's best known and widely read uh, education experts. His Visible Learning series of books have been translated into 29 different languages, would you believe, and sold over 1 million copies. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Now, um, we've all heard the saying that parents are a child's first teacher, but I guess uh, for many of us, it's uh, one of those things that we shouldn't confuse this role of a parent um, with, uh, I guess, a school teacher. Um, but rather, you know, I understand from um, in doing the preparation for the interview today that a parent should be, I guess, a child's first learner. So I would love to know from your perspective and to expand a little bit on this, because I understand this is, I guess, a point of view that you you support. So I'd love to hear all about it. Well, Rachel, I'm sure every parent who has gone through COVID teaching over the last two years has realised, despite the fact they all went to school themselves, and some of your listeners went through school very successfully. But when it comes to teaching their students, they weren't as good as they thought they were. Yes. They struggled with getting them to be motivated. They struggled with them to finish the work. They struggled when the kids struggled. And they sometimes forgot that learning struggle is the best possible word. And so when people talk about parents being first teachers, I think that mixes up the role dramatically with what school teachers do. And some parents just aren't as good as teachers as they are as parents. And so the argument we're making in the book is that we want parents to be first learners, to talk about the language of learning, to see errors as opportunities, to engage in activities with their students, with their kids, and think of it in terms of how do we actually go about learning this? Having discussions at the dinner table about learning rather than what you did. Yes. And so this whole, one of the major focuses, if you want to develop great learners, you have to be the best learner yourself first. Gotcha. Now, there's so much to, to expand on this topic. Before we get stuck into all of the questions, I wanted to acknowledge we published your article and the title is 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners. Now, for someone who hasn't read the article yet, can you please tell us a little bit about like what it's about and, of course, what inspired you to write it? Well, I'm at the stage of life, Rachel, where I'm now a granddad. 
I have to tell you, I love the role. It's wonderful. And Kyle had my first grandchild uh, six years ago. And like I'm sure all of us, oh my gosh, I had so many great stories to tell him. I told him exactly, I said, yeah, you came out of it quite well. So let me tell you what we did. And he was very nice about all this advice he was getting until one day he said to me, almost out of exasperation, Dad, isn't there research on how to be a parent? Oh, that kind of hit me thinking that, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be good at. And here I am giving anecdotes and opinions and my own experiences. And so I started looking at the literature on you know, parenting. And it's not as big as it is with education in schools, but there is plenty out there. So we pulled all this evidence together. And this was about six years ago, Rachel. And then we said, well, let's put it together in a book. And one of the big themes that we've been pushing over the years, it's not so much what we do that matters. It's how we think about what we do. And that notion, which we call mind frames, ways of thinking. And the book is about 10 different ways of thinking as a parent to develop great learners. And we do have we relegated it to an appendix because it was a bit heavy. We do have the research base uh, acknowledged in the book, but it was a really good uh, adventure that we went through as a father and a grandfather um, of looking at uh, what those 10 big steps were, what the evidence says, and throughout we have some of our stories to illustrate those. Yeah. So I wanted to acknowledge about the book. So um, you've just, that's just been uh, launched uh, this week. Um, it's called 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents. So tell us a little bit more about the book um, in a nutshell. And I, of course, like just overall, what's the major theme? Sure. Um, that big theme clearly of um, creating great learners. But to do that, we suggest that there are 10 major ways of thinking. Um, for example, what's your expectations of your child as a parent? Because those expectations turn out to be very critical. If you have very low expectations of your child, you'll be very successful. And that's a bit sad. Um, if you have too high expectations, uh, that also can be quite sad. So that Goldilocks principle of not too high, not too low, not too boring comes into play. Um, you as a parent are expected to make demands on your kid. But from their point of view, are they seen as reasonable? Mm -hmm. Are you seen from your child as a great listener? Like, we love to talk. Oh my gosh, I'm an academic, I love to talk. You're in the business, Rachel, of talking. But when you're a kid, you wanna be listened to. And not only do you wanna be listened to, you wanna have the parent understand what you're saying. They don't have to agree, but that notion of at least they understand. And that is the step that's going to make a dramatic difference to your child as the child grows up because they also will then start to realise yep. they have to stop. And that skill of listening is something we don't often teach, but that's really powerful. I couldn't agree with you anymore. All children just want to be seen, heard and loved. Uh, and it's yeah. one of the most important things. So, so what I'm hearing, John, so it's not an academic book, but it includes messages, stories, and suggestions for parents to develop great learners. Um, and my understanding of the major theme is, as you mentioned before, it is less uh, what you do, but how you think 
about what you do as a parent. Now, I just wanted to preface, this is um, something that's in the um, article that we published, um, and I absolutely love this par paragraph. So I am reading um, your words here. So here we go. <clears throat> Children are great mimickers in the early years. So if you are silent, they do not advance in developing language. Uh, if you do not answer their why question, they, they do not form views about their world and stop being curious. If you do not listen to them, they are unlikely to listen to you. If you do not let them make and recover from errors, they will fail to be confident learners. And if you do not let them learn how to work in peer groups, they will be learners or selfish. So developing language, curiosity, listening, failure, and friends are the key to learning. It's so powerful. Could you just expand on that just a little bit for me now? But there are some homes where parents talk to the dog more than they talk to the kids. <laughs> Language isn't common. It isn't frequent. And we know, um, and I certainly know this as a granddad of two, three-year-olds, their why questions can sometimes drive you mad. But from their point of view, it's a big deal. They're trying to understand that world around them. Um, and the exposure to language at that period makes a dramatic difference, particularly when they start school. And some students, some kids don't develop that language. They don't get answers to their why questions. Yes. And so we wonder, we shouldn't wonder then why when they start school, they're loners, they don't have a way of engaging, they don't know how to work with their, their friends and peers, et cetera. And so those early years are very critical to language. And the, the other one that comes through very strongly in this, Rachel, is errors. Um, like Carol Dweck did one of, I think one of the best studies she's ever done, where she looked at parents with three-year-olds. And they were, the three-year-olds were building a blocks into a castle or whatever, and then you know, as is normal, halfway through, it fell apart. What happened next was critical. If the parents stepped in and helped the child fix it, as opposed to the parents allowing the child to fix it, that was one of the best predictors of their success in later life. They learned to see errors as opportunities, not as embarrassments. And so you can see throughout the incredible power that parents have when they have that way of thinking about, I'm going to develop this kid as a great learner. Like there, are, there are a million books out there, as you know, and you know, your Kedipedia is full of things about behavior and all the usual things we talk about as parents. But we wanted to specifically focus on this notion of learners, because um, that, that's where we see parents having probably the most influence. So, I mean, what can um, concerned parents and carers do to ensure their children of all ages develop great learning habits? Is it about having that intention of wanting to ensure that you are developing um, learning habits and, uh, you know, um, just behaviours in, in the child? Is it is it uh, also equally about learn, um, listening, as you mentioned before? Is it a combination of that? I'd love to, love to know. Yeah, it is a combination of all those things, but it's also... Um, like, let me ask you, Rachel, you know, what's your passion? Me personally, I just want to make yeah. a difference and help. That's, no. yeah, that's what I'm passionate and that's about. The, and that's the message your kids will pick up. Like, kids are incredibly perceptive and they will pick up your passion. And so, what is it about your passion that you want your kid? Like, some parents, their passion is fishing or something else. Yes, their kids will realize this. Now, they will. They won't be experts at it immediately. And if you set too high a, an expectation, they won't follow your passion because they can't possibly meet it. But if you have steps along the way 
of various levels of success, they're more likely to follow that passion. So you know, students, kids often mimic their parents in many ways about their passion. So that's one thing that I think you need to get across. The biggest problem for many kids is their parents don't have a passion. And so they never learn how to engage and go deeply and understand and master. And we talk in the book about the skill world and the thrill. And you know, how do we develop the kids' skills to do these tasks? That notion of their disposition and the key one is confidence. Um, I, let me give you an example. One of my fascinations with gifted kids is the majority of gifted kids do not become gifted adults. Less than 2% of child prodigies become gifted adults. And the major reason for that is that they get very down and deep into their area. And when they hit, particularly around their teenage years, where they're forced to go into areas they don't know, they have no skills to fail. They do not know how to be anything other than excellent. But sometimes their parents won't let them be anything other than excellent. So they fall over, and that's very sad. But when, I, when we talk in the book about all kids, we talk about, does your child have the confidence to take on a challenge? And are you helping them gain that confidence? And that confidence to take on challenges. Some kids learn very early for all kinds of reasons. Don't do anything you can't do already, which means they're not great learners. Learning means doing something you don't know how to do. And that is really a key for parents. And so when parents make mistakes, it's an opportunity to talk about. Now I'm gonna regroup. These are my coping strategies. This is what I'm gonna do next. And that has a major power yeah. on how the students develop as learners. I'm hearing communication is, is such a powerful tool uh, on all aspects. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your visible learning research, John, and how you've applied um, that to co-parents this time around? Look, the, the visible learning research is based in schools and it is based particularly about achievement. Um, and you know, I've been collecting data. I have about 300 million students in the database trying to ask which of the many influences that happen out there have the biggest impact on enhancing students' progress on their achievement. And similarly in schools, it's the way teachers and school leaders think about what they do that matters. And one of my frustrations is you know, a teacher may say to you, well, come into my class and watch me teach. Well, that's an absolutely foolish thing to ask because firstly, how can I watch that teacher as a five-year-old or a 15-year-old? I can't. And secondly, it's how they make those moment-moment decisions. And one of the ironies of visible learning is learning often isn't visible. The reason I call it that is I want to make it more visible by creating a language about learning. Mm. And same in, in classrooms, it's how is that teaching and making that decision? Like I can give two teachers exactly the same script to follow. One will be successful, one will not be because of the decisions they make. Right. And same with parents. And that's how we applied the work across. Are there similar ways of thinking in the parenting area? Yes. And that's why we decided on those 10. So in the book, uh, you offer a 10-step plan uh, to nurturing curiosity and intellectual ambition. Um, but, and that's all based on strong research. Can you maybe just take us through some of those steps now? Yeah. Um, We've talked a bit about uh, those early years, so let me go to the school school years in terms of the steps there, is that recognition that you're a parent, not a teacher, and that sort of clarification of your role. Um, 
Like I, I, I take the very strong view about homework, for example, and that's schoolwork done at home. So if it doesn't happen, it's a school problem. Whereas some parents get very high angst about that. Um, so how can you help your, your child go back to school and say, I didn't understand the homework, I could do it, or this is what I can't do. So there are steps you can engage there. So you're not taking over the role of teacher or turning your, the, the home or the bedroom into a, a classroom. You're actually helping the child deal with uncertainty or certainty. Um, deal with understanding, uh, like with social media, how do we teach them the skills to evaluate whether the site is good, bad, right, wrong? And those are skills that parents, they do it all the time. But we shouldn't presume that kids have those skills. Um, that notion of um, that language of learning, like this is a really tough one. Like, I look at someone like you, Rachel, and I look at some of your listeners out there who may be in the education business. So let me ask you this question as a, someone in the business. How do you learn, Rachel? How do I learn? Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a visual learner, generally. Um, and I learn also by uh, ensuring that I, when, I, when I digest the information by writing it down. So um, I, I don't know if that sort of comes into visual learning, um, but everything that I sort of goes into my brain, I have to generally sort of write, <laughs> if that makes sense, because somehow it's like I internalize that information and it sticks. So I don't know if that makes okay. sense at all. Well, I'm listening to you here and because we're friends, I can say this. No, you don't. Okay. That may be where you start, but the reason you're successful in your business is that if that method doesn't work, I bet you've got other methods that you use. Mm-hmm. And you've learned over the years that, hey, this is the one I'm most successful. I'm going to start here. But if it doesn't work, you have others. Now, that's not true with a lot of kids. Um, But let me also raise another issue here. Even as adults, sometimes we struggle to have a language about how we learn. Mm. And you see it from a kid's point of view, being a kid is all about learning. We don't even talk about it. We talk about what they do, uh, but that notion of, the strategies they use. So the first is building that language about learning. The second is finding out how the kid does a problem. And if they do the problem and don't do it well enough, ask them to do it again using the same strategy is, is a recipe for failure. So are you prepared to show your, your, your kid a different strategy? Like saying to your kid, go and clean up your bedroom. What does success look like? If they don't have a concept of your notion of success, and they don't clean it up satisfactorily, then you've created a massive hole. That bit. So showing us you, so don't go and say to them, go and clean up your bedroom. I want you instead say, I want to go and clean up your bedroom and make sure you put this away, you, the floor's clean, blah, blah, blah. So you've got to, you know, same in schools, showing kids up front what success looks like is more likely to make them successful than asking them to hope and guess what you think is successful. Mm. So that's part of the other steps we're trying to get at is tell kids what success looks like. Understand what ways they're thinking as they do it. Get them to think aloud as many as often as possible. It's not easy to do, yes. but you're never going to understand how Rachel thinks unless we ask her to think aloud. Same with kids. Yeah. So, I mean, how can we help parents and students communicate effectively with teachers? Talking about that in particular, you, you, we've referenced teachers earlier on and you've just mentioned it now, but how can we help parents and students communicate more effectively? I go back to COVID teaching. Um, I don't know if you watched your child during home teaching. What was that experience like for you? Oh, I don't have children yet. So I, oh, okay. Well, you've got, a, 
you've got that ahead of you. But many parents were quite surprised about their, how their kids operated you know, during distance learning. And the point I'm making is that that was one of the most powerful ways of communicating with teachers and teachers with parents about that experience. Now, traditionally, what we do is we send a report home a couple of times a year. We actually did an analysis of 300 schools reports. And on the basis of that, 98% of kids in Australia are achieving well, putting in an effort the pleasure to teach. It's a lie. It's the biggest public relations lie. So no wonder parents get frustrated. Yeah. Watching your child, uh, like Singapore's just passed a law that every, every kid, every month, has to spend one day at home learning because it helps the parents understand what learning looks like and gives a much better communication with the teacher. Whether they talk to the teacher, the kid's struggling with this, how do I deal with it? As opposed to that five minutes or whatever thing that we have in our present situation. Yeah, yeah. So I think we've learned a lot about how we do that. And so it, it's how does your child deal with struggle? How do they deal with it? That's what you want to talk to your, your teachers about. How do they work with other kids? Mm. Uh, in today's world, employers are already asking for graduates who are team players who can communicate and work with others. How do they do that in the classroom? And that's often not seen by parents, except in COVID teaching. But these are the ways we want parents to talk. But let me give you another, one, one other way. The most powerful way of parents talking to teachers through their kids. Um, asking the students to, for instance, teach back. Why don't you teach me back something you learned at school today? And that's a great discussion to have to understand what's happening at the school, what their feelings are at the school, more about your child than you'll ever hear by a five-minute conversation with a teacher. So, so, so would you say that that is a, a, a positive way of promoting a language of learning in the home is, is asking open-ended questions at the dinner table, enabling them to be able to verbalise what they learnt at school as, yeah. as, as a method of, of, of teaching and learning at home? Like if Carl was here and, and we asked him as um, my kid, what was the question I asked at the dinner table every night for his whole school career for all my boys? It's the same question. Um, what feedback did you get from your teachers today? I wanted to move away from the what did you do or you know, what was the funnest thing because it's the what question. And you know, kids will tell you and it'll be over in two minutes. But when you start, um, like I, I challenge your listeners to ask your kids that and let me warn you, it, it may take you six months before they give you an answer. Yeah. It's not an easy question, but you do want to open the discussion about what learning is and what they struggled with and what was enjoyable struggle. And you want to really talk about that. And you want to say in your own life, well, today I had this difficult situation and this is yep. what it was and this is how I handled it. Or yeah, what do you think? Would you? So it's a reciprocal discussion, but the, what you talk at the tea table is very critical to what that interaction you're going to have with your child and how you're going to support them. Well, they always say, if you want a better answer, ask a better question. So it's about rephrasing questions to, in order to ex extract the gold out of the children and have them think differently. Um, I'd love to know, like, what do you say to parents who have high expectations of their children academically? If by that you mean they are unrealistically high, like perfectionists, uh, the, the cliche of the tiger mum, then we've got a serious problem because perfectionism is not something mm. that is going to be a, a, a valuable attribute of your child. On the other hand, I'm quite happy for parents to have high expectations. Like we, when we went into the four lowest socioeconomic schools 
and we worked with them for five years. We, we interviewed every parent when they came in as in year one. And we said, what do you want your, your child to be when they leave high school? And virtually every parent, the well, majority of them said, uh, we want them to go to some kind of tertiary, to you know, to university to take or whatever. We interviewed those same parents, <coughs> excuse me, when they went from pri primary school to high school. And almost every one of them said, get a job. We doubt those parents' expectations. You can't tell me across 5,000 kids that their expectation of going on to further education was inappropriate. Yeah. Um, but sadly, we, we didn't do a good job there. So I have no trouble with parents having high expectations, um, but it then becomes their role as well as school, as society, to help their child realise those expectations. Yes. Um, some, some kids have expectations of themselves which are very low and is the biggest barrier to their success. Mm. And so when you say to your kid, you've got to see you know, how can we get to get a B next time? Now, as a parent, that's tough for you because you don't have control over the classroom. You cleaned your room. It wasn't good enough. How do we make it better next time? That's when you can work with them to do it. It's not just a punishing act. It's an yeah. educative opportunity. And yep. so that's how you realise high expectations. Um, and and on, the, on the, the topic of education, a lot of parents are quite concerned about their children's learning post-COVID now that we're back in the schoolrooms and, and life is returning back to whatever this new normal is. So what, would you, what advice would you give those parents um, about this topic? Well, firstly, you know, it's, it's early days yet, but there are, there are already two meta-analyses of the effects of COVID on schools and achievement. And you know, I've been collecting all that data. And if you look at the trajectory that students make from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, in the previous 10 years, and you compare that with what happened in, say, 2020, there was hardly a difference. All this myth about learning loss, like learning didn't stop. And uh, I certainly have argued that you've got to give credit to the expertise of teachers that they didn't allow learning to stop. It wasn't that different on average. Now, yes, there's massive variation here. So that's the first thing. But the question that I've already come to there for is, many parents saw their kids struggling during COVID, but that's normal. That's what they do in classrooms. And that's our message in the book. Struggle should be our best word. Failure is a learner's best friend. How do we actually make that as opportunities to learn? Like the worst thing you can do for a kid at home or school is treat errors as mistakes, as embarrassments. No, the exact opposite. Like you don't go to school to learn that which you know. It's what you don't know. Same in the home. When a kid doesn't know to do something, that's not an embarrassment. That's not the time for telling off. That's the time as an opportunity to learn. So my comment to parents about COVID is kind of get over it. It wasn't as bad as you think it was on average. Yes, I know there are massive differences. There was death, there was unemployment, there was horrible situations. But overall, that's the norm. How do you take the opportunity in COVID of seeing kids struggle to say, we need to make them, help them struggle better? Mm -hmm. So why is failure most important to um, a child's learning and development then? So can you say that again, please? Rachel? Yeah, why is failure uh, most important to a child's learning and development then? Because the whole premise of learning is to know what to do when you don't know what to do. Um, and that not knowing what to do, um, going to the edge of your knowledge and understanding and, and going over the edge into unknown territory is what learning is all about. 
uh, like when we use, um, we have an, a, an app that I'm familiar with called Verso. And one of the things it does is it allows the kid after a lesson to identify the emotion that they experienced from that lesson. And we have thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who have done this. And the dominant emotion by a long way is boredom. And boredom is a manifestation that kids have not been turned on to the challenge. The work was too hard. The work was too easy. And so the reason failure is critical is that it indicates that you are at the edge, you are going into exciting new territories. It's like when the parent says, oh, my kid got 100% of the test. My reaction was, the test was too easy. It didn't stretch the kid. It's having that confidence to be stretched, to go into new territories. And this is why uh, we, we talk a lot in the book about the, building a kid's confidence to take on challenges, to see errors as opportunities, because that's what all learning is about. Mm. You were mentioning earlier about the Goldilocks principle, um, which you sort of just referred to, I guess, in, in, from a different perspective now in the, in the fact that a child can either sort of um, find a topic uh, either too easy or too hard and there's no sort of just right. So I guess that's the, the biggest thing and that's what I'm hearing at the moment. How can parents, I guess, really understand what is just right and, and how does that influence their, their children's learning? How do, how do they know where their, their child is on that scale well, we, we think it's pretty easy to do that. But the first thing is you have to know pretty well what the child can do now and their skill set now. And you know, a lot of parents are not too bad at that. And then it's that matter of setting what we call success criteria for the next level. Not too hard, not too easy, not too boring. Uh, the best analogy, and we use the analogy in the book, is of computer games, of video games. Like, I don't know about you, Rachel, but I went through a period where I was a little obsessed with Angry Birds. Now, those gamers know how to understand what you go to the game with, your prior score. They know how to set that Goldilocks principles. If they said it too hard, I wouldn't play the game. If they said it too easy, I wouldn't play the game. And too often, that's the problem. The work's too easy. It's just doing what you know. But then they also show you what success looks like. And I can spend many hours, far too many hours playing the game to get to that next level of Angry Birds. But unlike many parents who say, oh, well done, son, daughter. You've got very well, go out and play now. They don't do that in Angry Birds. They raise the next level. And I'm obsessed with getting the next level. The other thing that they do is given they set a level, I play the game and if I don't get there, they don't say, oh, well done, you did your best and lower the criteria of success. They give you other opportunities and feedback so that, and I'm very good at going online and checking how to get to the next level and asking my teenage kids how to get to the next level. And so that kind of thinking is what's really key here. Find out what your kids can do now and your skill as a parent is setting the success criteria, not too hard, not too low, not too boring, and then monitoring and evaluating how your child is getting there, giving them feedback, and then raising the, the bar. That's how you get great high expectations. That's how you listen to your, your kid, because you have to listen to them very carefully about where they are and how they're getting there. That's when if they don't get there, you see that as an opportunity to learn as opposed to tell them off. And that's our message in the book. You can be a really great learner. So, I mean, for any parent watching and listening um, that just doesn't know, I guess, where to start with engaging with their children and extracting that gold out of them and asking the right questions, uh, 
and as I, I prefaced at the very start of um, the, the interview today, I mean, how do parents know otherwise where to start if they weren't um, taught those questions or asked those questions um, that they didn't emotionally regulate um, themselves as a child, but they, they intend and have the intention to want to offer that to their children. What's your suggestion where, where they should start? Well, the starting point is learning to be a listener as a, as a parent. Learn to be a listener. Uh, learning to be a listener. And, listen to your, and if you listen to your child, you'll end up with so much more language, which is rich. Um, your child will start to talk about things that they probably have been thinking about or in their, their minds that sometimes they're afraid to talk about, um, which they need to talk about. And the more you, should, you can show you're a listener, that's the place to start. There's a lot more to it, but listening is probably the most powerful skill. And otherwise, besides that, because it is a massive topic to approach. So, I mean, for anyone watching and listening, what would be, besides what you've just mentioned, to, 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 to be a good listener, what are your key messages and key take takeaways for any, like everyone watching and listening today then? Well, it, it, it's, as a parent, we want you to stop often and say, I wonder how my child understood what I said. Like we know that as adults, we are incredibly good at giving massive amounts of feedback to our kids. But they have a skill that we often forget that we have too. They are brilliant at selective listening. And they, as they grow up, particularly teenage years, they are stunningly good at selective listening. And I have to admit, Rachel, so am I. <laughs> my partner tells me things, sometimes it's easier not to hear them because then I don't have to reinvest. I don't have to do it again. I don't have to feel like I'm getting told off. Say, so, oh, I didn't hear you say that. Now, kids are like that too. And so that's one of the other notions is how do you check as a parent that your feedback was heard, understood, and actionable, that the kid actually could do something with it? And so we've, we've talked about key messages about listening, about engaging in the language with your child. But there's other key messages, uh, for, for example, about how you give your child feedback. Like we as adults, parents, teachers, uh, bloggers, you name it, we are incredibly good at giving feedback. The problem isn't the giving of feedback. The problem is, is the feedback received? And kids, <laughs> they're like us, Rachel, they're brilliant at selective listening particularly when they get to teenage years. Like I know one of my skills in, in my married life is I'm a brilliant selective listener because when she tells me I've done it wrong or it wasn't good enough, I don't hear it because feedback sometimes costs. And so when we look at feedback as a parent and we tell the kid what they did right, what they did wrong, you know, how they did it, that isn't good enough because from a kid's point of view, I would argue from an adult's point of view too, they want to know how to improve, where to improve. And I, I sat there with young people with two pages of my brilliantly written feedback about what they did right, what they did wrong, how they did it. And they hold those two pages in their hand and look you in the eye and they say, but I got no feedback. Because from their point of view, they got no feedback about where to next. So one of our messages throughout the book is, Nothing wrong with giving feedback about how they went and whether they did it right or wrong. But unless there's also 
and here's how you can improve, and this is what success looks like compared to where you're at, it has very little effect, and kids will have selectively listen it out. So that's one of the other big messages, is that kids actually want to improve. And if you don't help them improve, they start to turn off. And so take that opportunity. So that's one of the other big, powerful messages throughout the book. Wonderful. And if anyone wants to grab a copy of the book and or I guess maybe reach out to you personally to ask questions or anything like that, whereabouts can they find you and where can they purchase a copy? Well, it's that usual story with virtually every um, internet, the Amazon, so book, book token, and all those um, booksellers have it on their site now because it came out this week. Um, I'm easy to find. My email is pretty available throughout the web. I have to confess I, I'm I do have a Twitter account. I have 26,000 followers, but I've never tweeted. You've never tweeted. <laughs> I decided not to get into that because I get consumed by things. I said not that, so I've never tweeted. Uh, so I don't have that. But you know, we, we have a website. Uh, if you look up Visible Learning, you'll, you'll find enough, plenty too much, actually. Well, I'm happy to talk to anyone. <laughs> well, you know, we'll have as many uh, of those links and um, I guess connection points to get in touch with you, John. But today's been a great honor. Uh, thank you very much. And I wish you all the very, very best and, and so much success with the book. And no doubt it's going to help make a difference to, to so many families' lives. So thank you so much and take care. All the best. Thank you. Bye. I'm Rachel Monteleone and you've been listening to Kiddypedia, the podcast. You can have full access to Kiddypedia by visiting our website at kiddypedia.com.au or following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. We're all here to help make the world a better place for our children and for generations to come. You can start today by helping us reach other parents by going to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to give my love to the kids.